Good morning. Could you open up the first John chapter two, please? First John chapter two. I'd like to just see a quick show of hands. Who who here likes scary movies? Anybody like scary movies? Julie, I know you don't like scary movies. Julie can't, she can't even stand the dark. I know that. All right, so for those of you who like scary movies, I have a quick mental quiz for you. Here's the quick mental quiz. When a family packs up their paneled station wagon and drives out to an old farmhouse in the country that they just bought to raise their young family, what two rooms of the house should they avoid at all costs? Basement, and what's the second one? Attic. Excellent. Sometimes the barn. Wendy, how many scary movies have you watched in your life? <laughs> okay. All right. You're right, though, Wendy. So the basement usually is where people hide the dead bodies. But the attic, the attic is where the ghosts live. They love the attic. There's a couple reasons for that. Because, you know, in the... Downstairs, that's where all life happens. Usually the family cleans it up. If you go in the kitchen, there's usually coffee brewing, and you know ghosts hate the smell of coffee. They hate it. So brew coffee. You'll keep them away. They don't like the living room because usually you have the big picture window and the sun comes in, and they hate the sun because it goes right through them, so they hate the sun. And all of the ghost hunting equipment usually is on the table in there. Bedrooms, bedrooms are a bit scarier because they may have some creepy clown toys in the bedroom. Or those dolls, you know those porcelain dolls that close their eyes and you pick them up and their eyes open. It's funny, my sister's bedroom would lead up to the attic. Her name was Stephanie and my sister Gina would often, when she's at garage sales and saw porcelain dolls there, she'd buy them and kind of sit them on the attic steps. So when Stephanie opened it up, they'd just be staring at her. I knew when she'd be sleeping in the living room that Gina bought another doll. That's how I knew. <laughs> but ghosts like the attic. And there's a couple reasons, because ghosts like you and me, every once in a while they like peace and quiet. But also the spiders are up there, and they spin their webs up there, and the ghosts like to hide behind the cobwebs and the dark corners. It's in the attic people don't like to go. They don't like to go. And I think if we have one compartment in our mind that's like the attic. It's where we deal with the spiritual and theological questions. People don't like to go there because they don't necessarily like what they're going to find. Ghosts of doubts, demons of convictions, and maybe even God who's angry at me lurking up there. So instead of opening the door up into the attic of our mind, People keep it locked and spend most of their time in the downstairs rooms of your mind, talking about entertainment, movies, your job, what sports team you like, the price of gasoline, your latest ache and pain, or other very safe discussions. But the big questions, the big ones, like how do I deal with my current guilt that's haunting me from my sin? Or the shame of my past that, oh, I just want to keep it buried. Or even my standing before God. Can I really be sure of my salvation? We put those thoughts up in the attic and lock them, and we don't go there. Our, our mind is sort of like this when it comes to deep theological questions. 
This is a spiritual x-ray of the brain that does not like to go up there. It just gets more and more full of confusion, doubt, fear, feelings of condemnation, and even alienation from God. He just does not love me. So, John has given us the book of 1 John. And 1 John is a light, a bright light that helps lead up into the cobwebs of your mind and cleans them out. Gets rid of confusion. It's there to answer doubts. And it's also there to show you just how much God loves you. So today we're going to talk about cleaning cobwebs. 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. When, I, when I'm troubled, when I have theological questions, this is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture that is so clear. When you leave this, you cannot deny just how good God is. Here's what it says. My dear children, John writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, or the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live, other versions say must walk as Jesus walked, must live as Jesus lived. So the title of this is Cleaning Cobwebs, and it's going to answer those doubts that destroy your joy. In fact, the whole book of 1 John, if you look at chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the reason it's written is so that we can have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and so that our joy may be complete. So the whole point of this book is for certainty, because certainty leads to joy. And today we're going to talk about the doubts that invade the addict of your brain and kind of suffocate that joy. And we want to shine a light on it so it won't destroy your walk with God. There was a dear man that used to attend this church. His name was Terry Long. And he's now at home with the Lord. And for those of you who remember Terry, he was a man that did two things. He loved the scriptures. This guy loved the scriptures. Second thing about Terry Long is he was a pastor's friend. He liked to call the pastors all the time. He'd often call me to encourage me, talk about questions of scriptures that troubled him. But every time we met or talked, Terry Long would usually ask me this question. This would be his question. How can a person really be sure that if they sin or even doubt, they won't lose their good standing with God? He'd say, Pastor, can I really know for sure that I'm saved? These are questions of assurance. All of us have them. I was there when Terry took his last breath at the hospital, and it was clear he loved God. I mean, he was clearly a believer in Jesus. But I'll be honest with you, this question that he asked, we all have. It haunts us at our lowest moments. 
comes down out of that attic when we're at our worst and it says, are you sure? Are you sure you're his? Do you really know? I had a uh, teacher at Moody. At the end of every prayer, he'd pray Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 11 says, If by any means may I somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Like that was, even though he knew theology, he wanted to know for sure. Questions of assurance. These are the most feared shadows in the attic of the mind. And they usually take the form of three very scary ghosts. The first one haunts you like this. If I sin, am I back under God's angry condemnation? And the key word there is angry. Is he angry at me again? I knew a guy that said, you know, I know salvation is by faith alone and all you got to do is believe, but I'm not sure God wants me in heaven. There's this feeling that I don't think he really likes me. The second ghost says this to you. If I'm saved, can I lose my salvation if I sin too much? Because, you know, there is that sin, that one sin that all of us have our own, the way Derek liked to say it, that pet, pet sin we pull out. If I do it too often, do I lose my salvation? Then you have this other ghost that says, how can I forgive myself when I keep failing? I think that is why this passage of Scripture was written, is to answer these ghosts. John loved the people. He loved them, and he wanted to help them find confidence. He wanted them, as I said earlier, to have joy and find fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ certainty. But if at any minute you could lose your salvation, you can lose your standing with God, there's no joy. So what he's going to do is take 1 John chapter 2 like a bright 100,000 lumen light bulb and he's going to open up the attic of doubt, grab us by the hand and lead us up there and clear out the cobwebs so you can understand clearly how a person stands rightly before God. Look how he begins. It's like he grabs us by the hand and he says, My dear children, my dear children, my beloved ones, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. We have an answer that should calm our darkest fear. This is an amazing answer. We'll go into it in a second. But what he's talking about, he's leading off with this whole problem of the condemnation we hear in our voice from in our heads from sin. How do we deal with sin? It's that persistent problem that always stalks. And he's addressing it here because the last chapter is rather confusing. He was kind of a little bit sounded contradictory. Verse 6. He said if we keep walking in sin, we don't really have a relationship with God. Verse 8, he said if we claim not to have sin, we're self-deceived. So which one is it? Verse 9, if we admit our sin, he will forgive us. Verse 10, if we claim not to sin, we're calling him a liar. So this could kind of leave you a little bit confused. So he's going to clear it up for us as clear as possible. And I think the question we all have, so does sin condemn or not? Should I avoid sin or just treat it as no big deal? Because the truth is, the truth is, 
When we do sin, there's always that clammy finger of death that points at you. And it has that kind of that English voice, you know, that scary English voice that says, Oh, so you think you're a child of God, you do? You're guilty! Guilty! And then it laughs. You're guilty. I hear that all the time. And then you have those pesky sins that keep popping up in your life that you feel like I fixed, I licked these, but in a low moment or when you're tired or where stress is like a heavy weight on you, you give in. And then those accusations come flying back at you and they howl at you like ghosts in the attic. So what we do is we go back up there, close it, lock it, and try to do our best to just ignore it. Try to close our ears so those voices go away. And you've been there. I've been there. I'm there a lot. I think part of the confusion is found in the word if in chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 2. So he says, my dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. He doesn't want us to sin. So sin is bad. And then he says, but if anybody does sin, in that word if, it kind of has the idea of there's a possibility of choosing to sin and there's a possibility of not choosing to sin. It's kind of like a, a choice that you want to do. And one Greek scholar said, really, it's not about possibility. It's more about probability. So it should read like this. But when someone sins, we have an advocate. Because the truth is, we sin. But how Christians view it is the issue. And I think what he's doing for us, and the best way I like to view verse 1, 2, and 3 as a courtroom, and I'm going to call it the heavenly courtroom. And there's different players in this courtroom. In verse 1, he says there is, we, are, we go before the Father. So the Father, the heavenly Father, God the Father, is the judge in heaven's courtroom. I think we imagine God naturally as somebody sitting on the throne, gavel in his hand, stern face, probably has one of those old judgment wigs from England. And he's very upset. I think we sort of get that from the Old Testament because the Old Testament hints at this. In Isaiah chapter 6, here's how Isaiah sees him. Isaiah sees God on his throne in chapter 6, 1 through 5. I saw the Lord, he says. He was sitting on a lofty throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. Those are angels, angels flying, each having six wings. With two wings, they cover their face. With two wings, they cover their feet. And with the other two, they flew. So these massive angels. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation. The entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over, Isaiah says. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. 
David, in chapter 11 of Psalms, verses 4 and 6, writes this. And this is scary. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, holy is used. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion, it says. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. So you take these two pictures, and I'd say God as a judge can be quite terrifying. The fear of having to face such an awesome holy God on your own will chill and crush the heart of even the most courageous man. This God is awesome. That's the judge. So heavenly courtroom, you have the judge. Then you have the guilty sinner. Verse 1, I write this to you so you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, so that's the sinner, they're the defendant at the trial. They're presented before the judge. And as sinners, you and I, as sinners, know that we really have no excuse. We are not holy. We are guilty as charged. In your lowest moments, you know that. There is also placed inside of us a conscience, an internal law recorder that acts as our very own accuser, using guilt and self-condemnation to keep us wallowing in our own self-pity and our own shame. How could I do it? Oh, I'm rotten. And then we have pride that holds us hostage to ourselves because our pride has what I would say almost completely unattainable expectations. There's a side of you that you hold yourself to that you can never meet. And that's why a lot of counselors these days often suggest we first forgive ourselves because we are our own worst critic. We are. So then you have... What I would call is somebody in the shadows that's always there. And he is, you'll find him later all through the book of 1 John, but he is the main prosecutor of mankind, and that's even what his name means. Satan means adversary, accuser. And he's sitting there with his red, long, scraggly nail pointing it at you, saying, guilty. It's his favorite role to take. He takes no prisoners. Job 1, 7 to 12, paints him as this devil that's going around the world to the ends of the earth, roaming the earth, looking for servants of God who failed God so he can throw it in God's face. You call Chris Weeks a saint? <laughs> Some kind of guy who serves you, huh, God? Hebrews 2.14 says he then threatens us with death. This is where all those three questions hang over our head like, like a heavy piano hanging on a thin thread ready to just fall like Looney Tunes and smash us to the ground. And if we're not staying in the Word, if we're not praying, if we aren't vigilant about our thoughts, we just let them run wild. The ghosts in the attic who do Satan's bidding will come haunting. And they are fierce. 
They will cause you to see God as hot, angry, stern, condemning. They will paint you as just a failure. No good, unwanted, because despair is Satan's goal. That's his whole goal, to get you to quit, to get you to hang your head and say, why even try? I'm done with this stuff. To close this Bible and say, it's just, I don't want it. Done. I'm just going to go drink. But wait. You missed. There's one more person. In verse, verse 2. Here's what it says. It's, there's one that is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is this advocate with the Father. Advocate. Our defense attorney. Jesus Christ, the perfect one. He's the perfect one. So while Satan brings up evidence and accusatory arguments and says, you know that sin, you keep doing it, you're done, Jesus just brings himself. He brings himself. And he's our advocate. In verse 1, that word advocate is where we get the idea of paraclete. Holy Spirit's known as the paraclete, but one who walks alongside us or supports us. In this case, one who goes on our defense. And he's the best defense attorney you could buy with blood. He's amazing. And so here's his defense. He presents his defense. What is it? Verse 2, I already paid for Chris's offense. He's the propitiatory sacrifice. That means he's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That means when he went to God, he said, here's my blood, it's already been paid. And do you know how expensive his blood is? It's priceless. That's why we sing about it all the time. It's much more expensive than bars of gold and silver. Propitiatory sacrifice means he's the one. This word propitiatory means it satisfies the wrath or the anger of God. That's what it means. So when Jesus on the cross said it is finished, what's finished? God satisfied with us through Christ. His justice is completely paid for. So here's the deal. Jesus does acknowledge our guilt. That's not what he's arguing. He's not arguing about our guilt. But rather he's presenting himself, as one writer says, the ground of our acquittal. He's the ground of our acquittal. So when Satan comes and says, Chris is no good, Jesus steps in front and said, I don't care. This is about me. I already paid his penalty. So shut your trap. Some scholars don't like the picture of God as being angry and this judge and Jesus has to be crushed because God's irritable and he's a furious, little like a pagan god that needs to be bribed with blood. And the truth of the matter is, propitiation is real because God's justice needed to be met. His anger needed to be assuaged because he reacts to sin. Why does he react so violently to sin? Because sin has corrupted what he wanted to be beautiful. Sin has not just tarnished it, but it's ripped up God's perfection. It needs to be mended. And the only thing that mends it is Jesus' blood. So Jesus voluntarily took all of his father's wrath upon him at the cross. It wasn't arbitrary. 
It's because sin wrecked his perfect world and it needs to be satisfied. Jesus came to fix it, and he's the only one who could. I like how John Stott puts it. This propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God. John 3.36 says, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. So it's an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by us, nor even by Christ, but by God himself in sheer unmerited love. He did it, all of it. The Father did all of it. His wrath is averted not by any external gift, but by his own self-giving to die the death of sinners. This is the means he has himself contrived by which to turn his own wrath away. So when you see God as a stern and angry God, he's the one that found the solution for you. So he's the one that wants you most. It's amazing to me. The gospel's an amazing message. The Father loves us so much that he expressed his love through the giving of the Son, who now lives and stands next to us as our defense attorney forever. Satan has no more accusatory sting, and the blood is proof that our sin no longer condemns us. Comprende? Does that make sense? Capiche? See? Is it clear? Is that light shining in the attic of your brain? Jesus stands as your advocate forever because he rose from the dead. Ghosts are scared of him. I like what Martin Luther said about the devil. The devil is Jesus' devil. What he means by that is, have you ever had a pit bull dog? Pit bull dog's kind of nasty, but if you own that pit bull dog, that pit bull dog does what you say. The devil is Jesus' pit bull dog. He does what he says. There's no like, Jesus for Satan, oh my, who's going to win? Who's going to win? <laughs> the devil was made by Jesus. Jesus can go, you're done, Boom. That's why I say shut your trap, and Satan shuts his trap. I just, you, your brain needs to hear that. All right, so that brings us to verse 2, the blood applied. Look at what verse 2 says. So he's the atoning sacrifice. That means the blood that's shed for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus paid for us, and he paid for the sins of the world. His blood is available to all. So does that mean everyone's accepted before God? No, that's a heretical teaching called universalism. That's not true. The blood is only, it's only applied to those who apply it. It's available to all, but it's applied to those who receive it. If I have a headache and you give me a bottle of aspirin and you put it right there, that doesn't take away my headache, just because it's available. I have to open the top, and I have to apply the use of that aspirin, and then my headache will go away. In the same way, to be clean from sin, I need to apply his blood to my life. To my life. Even though his blood's available, it still needs to be applied. How? I'm going to present a five-point checklist for you. 
I'm going to use this checklist because its objective is to show you how good God is. And so when those ghosts come haunting, you need to know these verses. There's a checklist of five. I'm going to walk through them pretty slowly because it needs to be simple. And I want you to know them because these truths need to have more sway than your feelings. Your feelings lie to you every day. Every day. That's why he gives us the word because he says the word is like a sure foundation. So the first one is this. You receive salvation by faith. So John 1, 12 to 13 says, to all who receive him, to all who receive him, he gives them the right to be called the children of God. Not by what you do or what family you're born in or by the will of the dad because he baptizes you by receipt. So the only way I can have this aspirin if I myself take it, taking that aspirin is not a work. I didn't provide the aspirin. You did. Jesus provided the blood. Receiving the blood is just something he's made me able to do. It's my choice. Once I accept the blood, once I receive the aspirin, I'm his. He owns me. His blood bought me. Second one is I'm sealed. Go to Ephesians. This is such a good passage. People are like, oh, the gospel's so hard. It's so clear. This is going to clear out cobwebs like you won't believe. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Watch how you walk through it. Like if you ever want to lead somebody to Christ, just know this verse. It's so simple. Watch what it says. Ephesians 1 verse 13. It says you were included in Christ. That in Christ, included in Christ means the blood's applied to you. It's yours. You, are, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, hearing biblically means it goes into my brain and I get it and I accept it. What is the message of truth? Oh, it's the gospel of your salvation. The gospel is Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again on the third day for me. That's the message of truth. So when you hear it, and then it says, when you believe it, then when I say, oh, that's mine, and I believe it, look what happens. It says, you're marked in him with a seal, promised Holy Spirit. So when I accept it, the Spirit of God comes and lives in me. And then look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and the redemption of those who are God's possession. So when I believe the Holy Spirit's given to me, it's a guarantee. So when God guarantees something, do you think he reneges on his guarantee? God, God doesn't lie to you. So he's not like your used car salesman. Oh, this car will run great. Two grand, run for another 100,000 miles. I guarantee it. That's not. Jesus, his guarantee says this. Barely, barely, I say to you. Which goes to the next one, 524. Probably the clearest verse, Verily, verily, I say to you, if you receive him, you have passed from death to life. You have passed. Have is past tense. It's over. It's a done deal. 
And then this one's amazing. Romans 8.1, there, there is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Last year I was speaking at Lake Inn Camp, and I had about 20 campers, and we'd sleep outside, and I'd preach to them outside. And to get to the campsite, they took this yellow bus, old yellow school bus, and they'd file into the school bus, and then we camped outside the school bus. Well, a lightning storm, a massive one came. And we had to, it was in the middle of chapel, and so I'm preaching, and so we ran right before the hail started coming, and we went into the school bus. Lightning is cut in the sky, you know? So we're in that school bus, and there I'm preaching, and I'm preaching about being in Christ. And I said, you guys, this is the perfect example. Here we are in the school bus, warm, safe, dry, look outside the window, rad. We are in the bus just like we are in Christ, safe from his wrath. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then this final one is awesome. It's really saying Jesus is the judge. And the point of this is Paul's saying, am I doing the right thing in my life? You know, people judge me. I can't even judge myself. I don't even know if I'm innocent or not. He says, but it's the Lord who's going to deal with all that. And when I go to Jesus, I'm going to go to him on his promises, not my feelings. So, that is how you apply the blood. So then we go to two more scary ghosts. These guys creep up after... After the other ghosts are whisked away, these are two more scary, laughing ghosts up in the attic. And they deal with sanctification. And sanctification is, now that I know I'm saved, how do I live this Christian life? And the first ghost will say, oh, you can't lose your salvation, just sin freely. It's called antinomianism. Just go and do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. And in your heart, you know, that can't be right. And then you have the second ghost, which always asks, if I'm saved by faith, is the law even worth it? Do I do his commands now or not? Oh, if I do his commands and I'm not living by faith, uh uh-oh. How do I deal with this? Remember, John is going to write this book to give you confidence. So the next thing he's going to say is, how do I know the blood has been applied? He's going to give you a marker to know that you can be confident that Jesus' blood is yours. Look at verse 3 through 5 of 1 John 2. We know, we have confidence, that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete. This is how we know we are in him. So here's what you could say. If you want to gain confidence that you're really forgiven, obedience is what brings joy. It's what brings certainty. When you obey, you know that you love him. And the reason you obey is found in verse 5, love for God. There's some question about this phrase, love for God. Is love 
for God, God's love for me, or is it my love for him? Yes. Both. You could say it like this. The answer to that question, or the answer to how do I obey, is simple. It's just this. Love loves. God pours his love in me, and now that his love is in me, I love. How do I love? I love by obeying. First John, or John 4, Jesus is talking about what happens to us when we believe. He says, everyone who drinks the water that is from a well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So when Jesus gives us water, it just comes out of us. It's a motivation to love him. The spring of water, love of the Father for the Father, will act. It will want to obey because we love the Father. As one writer said, true love from God and for God, the love loves, true love from God and for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience. How do I know I love God? I had a feeling. Do you know how love from God and for God is expressed? In moral obedience. Chris, will you take out the garbage? Dad, you know I love you. Dad, I love you. Chris, will you, will you take out the garbage? Oh, Dad, I love you. You know I love you. I'm a good son. Hour later, Chris, did you take out the garbage? Dad, I told you I loved you. I don't care. Did you take out the garbage? Because if you love me, you will take out the garbage. Honey, it's Valentine's Day. And you know I love you. But I'm going fishing with some friends. And you know what? I may even bring my new girlfriend. But never forget, you're my number one gal. I love you. Do you? God, I love you, but your commands? Meh. Meh. But I love you. Do you? See, because God's commands actually are the best thing for you. God's word is for, meant to do two things, to protect you from yourself and to provide for you from his grace. So his commands help you do that. And then you do them because you love them and you trust them. And you trust them. So, love loves. Can't help it. So then he goes in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And to me, it takes it down one more notch. So, instead of talking about mystical teachings or concepts like forgiveness, love, mercy... John brings it down to a person. He brings it down. You really want to know it's all about a person and just live like them and then you'll know. You could say it like this. The earthly life of Jesus is the example and the answer for the confused person, the critic, and the frustrated. Who else is there to compare with Jesus? I think, I deep down think you and I have been designed to want to follow a person. We don't just want ideas and theories. We want a person in real life. I think that's kind of why we like celebrities, sports heroes, movie stars. Because something about a person, that in that person is that thing that I believe in. 
And Jesus is the expression of everything I want. And I want to follow him. He is God in human flesh. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. You can have someone come and teach you wonderful principles, concepts, rhetoric, but something is only true if it's lived out. And it's only true in your life is if, if you try it. So for instance, if I go to the, the uh, Flowerland Nursery and I get a packet of tomato seeds, and it's a nice clean packet, and in this is the seed of the tomato. And then I just put it on a shelf. Isn't that great? I believe that's a seed of a tomato. But how do I know? I put it in earth. And when I put it in earth, it comes out and I see it. How do I know God is real? The earthly man, Christ. And I place my faith in him. And then I walk as he walks. And then when I walk as he walks, you'll know that you know that you know. I was talking to Bob Ford about this. We always talk, we're Lord of the, we, we talk on Lord of the Rings level. And if you don't like it, too bad. I like Lord of the Rings. There's a guy in Lord of the Rings that's the king. His name's Aragorn. Aragorn, in the third book, in the Return of the King, went into the path of the dead. The path of the dead are where all of these scary ghosts are, but he had to go in there and defeat them, this one man. Everybody was terrified of going in there. But Aragorn knew he had to go, so he went. He had two other friends. One was Legolas and one Gimli. And it says in the book that they followed him. Even though they were terrified, they followed him because they loved him. I think that's the same way with Christ. A lot of times he's going to give us his word that sometimes doesn't. I don't like it. To be honest with you, there's a lot of things in this Bible I don't like. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. I don't like that. You know, sometimes it says, you know, you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid himself down. for. Sometimes I don't want to. I don't like that. That's not fair. Why do I got to do it? Because Jesus asked me to. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. Why? Because I love Jesus. He's the best. Someday, someday, the reason we're here, it's not necessarily to learn great things. We are here because someday you and I are going to see him. I've said this before, but if I could just, like to me, I imagine heaven's like a big arena and Jesus is going to be crowned and everybody's going to just be, just cheering and angels are going to be around on top, kind of like, you know, those fighter airplanes are going to come scorching over the stadium. The angels are going to be flying. But we're going to finally see him crown. And when he's crowned, I, you know, I'm probably going to have a seat that's way up in the nosebleeds at the far end. I don't care. I just want to see him crown. But even if I have a seat, I just hope he looks up my way and just says, that's all I want. He's worth everything. And so to me, we can argue all of these. What should I do? What should I do? All I would say is, do you love Jesus? Then do what he says. He says. 